This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 8th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. It is now a matter of public controversy. Is it cruel and unusual punishment to forever deny voting rights to former felons? And if so, what does that say about the denial of Second Amendment rights to those same people? Cody Wisniewski is with the Firearms Policy Coalition. We spoke last month in Chicago. In attempting to understand the circumstances under which the a government, either state or federal or local, I suppose, but mainly state or federal, can abridge the right to keep and bear arms is um, it's shrinking. The opportunities for government to do that are shrinking. Whether or not those governments really recognize that at this point is um, another matter. So there was this case about whether or not uh, having your right to vote prohibited from exercising that right, whether or not that constituted cruel and unusual punishment under the U.S. Constitution, which uh, a court said, a federal court said, yes, this is cruel and unusual punishment. That has incredible implications for the Second Amendment. Can you walk us through, uh, first of all, what are the elements of this case that, uh, that tie directly to people trying to secure their own protection? Yeah, absolutely. So, so you're right. I mean, government's uh, opportunity to regulate Second Amendment issues are, uh, or, or the the natural right of the individual to keep and bear arms, to possess arms for self defense, are certainly shrinking today, and they're returning uh, much more closely to what they should be or what they were at the founding era, and that's the key that we've seen. Right. So when Bruin was handed down last year. It reiterate what the reiterated what the Supreme Court had said in Heller, and essentially that is that you must look to text as informed by history when you're assessing any Second Amendment challenge. So you look to the text of the Second Amendment, what it says, what the plain meaning of those words are, and then if the conduct is covered, uh, assuming you know the, the challenged conduct is covered by the Second Amendment, then the government must justify its regulation by pointing to some analogous historical prohibition surrounding the founding era. So we're coming back to a place where governments are much more restrained because they're restrained by what the Constitution uh, meant when it was written and ratified and what the Second Amendment was intended to mean when it was ratified in 1791. Now, in this case, dealing with voting rights, this was coming out of the Fifth Circuit, was a 2-1 panel decision. And basically what the court said was that forever prohibiting a certain class of people, a certain class of felons, from being able to vote. There was a Mississippi law that that prohibited as such, that that was a cruel and unusual punishment um, because it wasn't, and I have a quote uh, that I can I can read. So the, the court said, the majority said, by severing former offenders from the body politic forever, section 241, which is the lifetime ban provision of the Mississippi state constitution, ensures that they will never be fully rehabilitated continues to punish them beyond the terms their culpability requires and serves no protective function to society. It is thus a cruel and unusual punishment, which should seem pretty straightforward, um, you know, forever removing the ability of an individual to participate in political society is, is in effect forever treating them as a different level in, in a political caste system. Why this directly should translate to Second Amendment issues is that in voting, we're talking about a positive right. It's a right that's been granted by government. The fact that you have a government 
means that there is thus voting for the representatives in that government, which means the right is in itself dependent on the existence of government. If there is no government, there is no voting. The Second Amendment protects something uniquely different, right? The Second Amendment protects a pre-existing right, a right that pre-existed the Second Amendment, that pre-exists government itself, a natural right, your natural right to preserve your life. Well, we've also created, and the federal government has also created, a political caste system when it comes to who can protect their lives. And so federal law has a provision, 922 G1, that prohibits all people uh, who are convicted of a crime punishable by more than one year's imprisonment from possessing a firearm for life. Now, you don't have to serve more than one year in prison. Punishable. Punishable by. It doesn't have to be a felony, which most people generally associate it with. Right. It also doesn't have to be violent. So there's a ton of stories surrounding people prohibited under G1. Some of the uh, more interesting are there was a, a case that had gone up to cert to the Supreme Court for a gentleman who imported illicit cassette tapes in 1987. He is forever prohibited from possessing a firearm for importing illicit cassette tapes. So, you know, a bad white snake tape and you're, <laughs> you're forever prohibited from possessing arms. There was another woman who, uh, who, you know, falsified or, or lied on her tax return. And uh, that opinion was even more offensive. The, the court said that because she deprived the government of the property it was due, that she was in fact the kind of person that should be able to be disarmed by the government forever. And so these are the things that are actually happening under G1. It's not narrowly tailored. It's not focused on violent felons. And in a sense, under this, this Fifth Circuit analysis, when it comes to voting rights, it should absolutely be considered an Eighth Amendment violation. It should absolutely be considered a cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, they, when you have a, a right that is, as my colleague Clark Neely likes to say, a right the Supreme Court takes seriously, <laughs> uh, otherwise known as a fundamental right, um, you know, and the right to keep and bear arms clearly falls in that category uh, of of rights and uh, disarming someone for life for, over something that is not even related to your behavior in public in a way that threatens anyone else. And that's what's so problematic when you look at these federal prohibitions is they're not targeted at people who probably could have been disarmed by states at the founding era. So one, there's a problem here that it's the federal government doing this at all, right? The federal government doesn't have this power. It's not an enumerated power in the Constitution. We didn't grant Congress the ability to prohibit people federally. This should be a state problem. Second, when you look at state prohibitions from the founding era, they were focused solely on dangerous people. Now, there were a lot of statutes at the time that were blatantly discriminatory, blatantly racist, and today would never survive scrutiny. But the other statutes that existed looked at actual danger. So, for example, the people who participated in the Shays Rebellion were disarmed for a period of three years after the rebellion. In other words, at the founding era, if you tried to overthrow the government, you had to give up arms for three years. That was the punishment. Uh, and so there was always this ability to restore. It, when you look at history, it's astounding at their treatment of arms. If you were, because right at, around the time 
being a debtor was very serious business at the founding era. In fact, a lot of people died in debtors' prisons uh, before maybe cruel and unusual punishment was fully teased out. Um, what you would see is that when people, when when people's entire estates were being sold off for repayment of debts, in some colonies, in some states, it was illegal to sell their arms. So even though you were selling everything that they owned for repayment of their debts, you couldn't sell their arms because those were so fundamental to individual liberty that, of course, the the you know the government at the time wouldn't dream of disarming people. And that's the problem: is these bans go so much further, and they're capturing so many people, but they appeal. You know, when you've got this divide between you know progressives and conservatives, progressives are happy to have the laws that are disarming people. Conservatives are tend to be more law and order, so these fall in this really weird space that people haven't wanted to talk about for a long time. In terms of gun rights groups that uh, would presumably have a big problem with this, um, we know where you stand. We know <laughs> where the Firearms Policy Coalition as a group stands. Where have other gun rights groups uh, made noise with respect to, again, this right that is taken seriously and had the Supreme Court has indeed urged other courts to take this right seriously because we want, frankly, we'd like to stop dealing with a lot of this. <laughs> uh, uh, where are they? Uh, some have been quiet. Uh, some have, have chosen not to weigh in on this issue. I'll let uh, you and your, your listeners uh, deduce which ones those would be. But others have. I mean, I think it's, it's something that has become more interesting of late. More of these 922 cases are being litigated in federal courts and more groups are jumping in to support that litigation. And I think in part that's because with the Bruin test, people feel like these cases have more likelihood of success. Um, these arguments are being taken seriously by courts across the country. In fact, federal courts across the country are striking down or holding unconstitutional various provisions of that. So, uh, you know, FPC is not is not alone in this fight. Certainly, you know, we're incredibly excited that there are other people that are taking on this issue as well. And the more people who raise this argument, the more people who take a stand against this disarmament, the better off we are. Right. The the last thing that you want is to be the lone voice in the conversation. We'd love for it to be a a chorus of those uh, advocating for the rights of all people, whether that's a nonviolent misdemeanant who lied on her taxes or well, that's a felony, I suppose, uh, or who's importing cassette tapes. If it's people who are smoking a plant uh, like the Fifth Circuit recently ruled as well, if it's people who, you know, are being disarmed because of a potential future appearance of danger, I mean, we need to be advocating for all of these people, whether or not it is the traditional party line or the traditional line of the movement. And there's no shortage, I would imagine, there's no shortage of people who have been, you know, had their, their rights treated with supreme disrespect by the criminal justice system, who are extremely sympathetic and whose cases have nothing to do with violence or firearms. Absolutely. And in fact, that's the vast majority of these these people who are disarmed. If you look at the category of actual violent felons versus all people who have ever been convicted of a crime, 
punishable by more than one year's imprisonment. Again, you don't have to be in prison for a year. You could never step foot in a jail or a prison. But if it is punishable by more than one year's imprisonment, then you're subject. So think about how broad and how vast of a category that is. Also, lifetime. It's not so if you make a silly mistake when you're 21 and you are convicted of a misdemeanor or, you know, Clark, I know talks about this a lot or plead guilty to a misdemeanor because of a system that is intentionally designed to force you to avoid trial and you're convicted or, you know, coerced into to agreeing to a plea, you could be forever prohibited from ever possessing an arm. And so if we've set up this system that is designed to efficiently get people to agree that they're criminals. And then once they've efficiently agreed to being a criminal, because the state has no interest in actually prosecuting them and actually putting on a trial, then they're also prohibited from protecting their life for the rest of their lives. And, and that's a, that, I mean, what the government is saying in doing that is that those people's lives are less valuable. You have, a, you have a natural right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If the government erases your ability to effectively preserve your life, the government is saying your life is less valuable, and that is offensive to the core of everything that we believe in. Cody Wisniewski is an attorney with the Firearms Policy Coalition. We spoke last month in Chicago. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thanks for listening.